0: Hello, Gary Williams here. Welcome to my In Conversation podcast, a mishmash of chit-chats with friends and influencers across the world. Now, a few years ago, I was hosting a UK radio show where each guest would choose four songs and tell me why they were important to them. Now, due to music copyright issues, I can't share any of that music with you here – just the conversation. So the music's gone, which might sound a bit weird sometimes, but I think it's still worth listening to what these great guests had to say. Enjoy. Hello, this is Gary Williams with your weekly fix of great conversation and the best music. We've got a smashing show lined up for you today, and this week, <laughs> I really mean it. We've got music from John Williams, Maurice Ravel, and Glenn Miller, all chosen by this week's special guest. Now, he's one of London's most Well, I would say most popular and prolific musicians. He's played for Jamie Cullum, Georgie Fame, Jules Holland, Dionne Warwick, and our friend Claire Teal. And as a band leader, his happy customers include, wait for it, Sir Elton John, President Bill Clinton, and Sir Richard Branson. That's not bad going. He's got a secret passion for model aeroplanes, and he's a self appointed curry expert. (laughs) He is. Pete Long.
1: Thank you, Gary. So nice to be with you in your studio. You didn't have to make me dress up in tie and tail, though, so did you? Well, that's the magic of radio. <laughs> it is the ma- so,
0: uh, I know you're a fan of Benny, Duke and Peggy, but why that particular track? Of course it featured you,
1: but... Well, it, you want, I, I thought we'd have something nice and lively that features me. Uh, temptation is a jazz standard you don't often hear these days. I think it got a bit overused in the 30s and 40s um, as something of a novelty number, but uh, I was introduced to that tune, funny enough, by Miss Piggy on The Muppets. Uh, it's one of the tunes I've known for the longest time. Um uh, Muppet Show was great for teaching kids music and, yes. and it's Cousin Sesame Street and you can see it on YouTube, there's a rather good thing, dial up Muppet Glee Club <laughs> and you have a big load of various <laughs> Muppets going, bobbity-bomb, bobbity-bomb bobbity-bobbity, but like Cecil B. <laughs> DeMille and Miss Piggy emerges through them going, you came I was alone to Kermit. It's such, such
0: sophistication it, wrapped up in this oh, nonsense, it's nonsense.
1: Well, it? But it's a great tune, I mean, as a, as a tune to blow on it's incredible, it's got all different sections it's quite chromatic, it's quite out of its time if I'd have asked you ten years ago to pick a tune of you playing, would mm-hmm. it have been
0: quite different to that?
1: Probably, yes, but... as, I mean, as you're playing and your taste changed much? No, not really. Um, really, my two big guiding lights are Duke Ellington and Dizzy Gillespie. Always been the way. And Yeah, and I, you know, pulled all my switches when I was a kid and I'm still picking the meat off the bone now.
0: Yeah, are you... Because you like to entertain... An audience mm-hmm. I think, I mean I think that's, uh, you feel that's an important part yes, of what you is. do, which is not typical amongst jazz
1: musicians, is it? Uh, well, no, but uh, I was very lucky when I was a kid at school. We had a pub uh, up the road called The Prince of Wales, which is now flat, of course, in Thornton Heath, and in the Prince of Wales every Sunday lunchtime they'd have the Martin Blackwell trio and august special guests like Don Weller or Pete King, people like that. <laughs> so every Sunday lunchtime, you know, I was, I was 17, of course, and I'm over a, an appropriate age, and me and my mate Andy would go and watch the jazz. And gradually we got an ear for the sound of small group, sort of modern jazz 1980 style. And uh, one week it was the great guitar player John Etheridge turning up. He turned up to do, be the, well, to be the turn. And unlike all the others, he explained about the tunes you see. You know, John's an amazing guitarist, Pete King for example is the best alto sax player in the world but John is merely amazing and um, and uh, so but we came away from that going that's the one we enjoyed the most because we were included in the show, we were included in this um, and so
0: that's So that's where you sort of were on the receiving end of seeing how important it is to, to involve an audience it's, to involve, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's It's half the show And you don't mind... That- Having a laugh, dear. No, no, I mean, no. You, you, you like having a laugh. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, one of my great heroes is Dizzy Gillespie, so I buy a lot of his live records with him chatting on it and fooling around with the audience. And he said something very wise. He said, if you make them laugh, you could, they'll listen to you do anything after that. You can, you can play anything you like to them. And Nat them King enjoy.
0: Cole said something like, "If he it, it, it was, it was always worried about the lighting, and he said, if it looks good, to most people, it's going to sound better. That's a very interesting well. point. Um, but... So why is it that a lot of jazz musicians kind of don't just keep their heads down and don't really say much in between songs and almost can get a bit sneery at people that are entertaining?
1: Well, I think the process of learning jazz, you have to learn an awful lot of bits to learn jazz. It's, it's like doing hideous algebra on a unicycle doing a jazz gig. <laughs> it's, that, it's that kind of amount of information. So a lot of people are very proud of the fact they've done this. And, they, uh, and uh, a lot of people think that that's maybe enough. Uh, And for someone like Pete King, to be fair, it is. Uh, But you've got to be as good as him. Uh, And so for the rest of us, I I find personally papering over all the cracks in my technique and harmonic knowledge (laughs) with gags um, is very handy.
0: Is it true your first job was in a bank? It was in a bank. I was terrible. And was that... I can imagine you were terrible. And Was that that, uh, the job that your parents wanted you to have?
1: Well, yes, I'm from a very long line of bankers, you see. Is that true? It is true. My dad was a bank manager. His dad was a bank manager. I think his dad before him was I an I think accountant. you got
0: out at the right time. It's not quite. doesn't quite have the luster amongst the community that it used to have in your no. dad's day.
1: No, no. Well, I mean, it, 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 I did a proper branch banking, you know. I was sat mm. on an inquiry's desk, and in fact, uh, the reason I left is I, I sent a very rude picture of a lady and a horse... Uh, To the convent instead of their bank statement. Um, One of my jobs was putting statements into envelopes. Was that a mistake? It was a terrible, terrible mistake. (laughs) Well,
0: I don't know (laughs) because had you not done that you probably wouldn't be playing the saxophone.
1: Uh, I'd have left, I used to practice my saxophone in the safe, in the lunch hours. (laughs) They're very good to practice in bank safes. But How did your parents feel when you decided? I mean, was it a surprise? Yes, well, they wanted me to be normal and uh, I, I didn't have it in me to be normal. So I auditioned for music college on the quiet and got a place, and I sorted all the grant out myself, and I just went and told them. And I think because I'd sorted it all out myself, they were quite pleased with that. It's
0: almost like coming out of the closet, isn't
1: it? With a saxophone.
0: Yes, I had to come out of the saxophone closet. And, and, and I am and, who I am, yeah, Mother. Yeah, that's right. You must just I'm still the same son <laughs> yes. that I was. And, I mean, how, how did they react?
1: Uh, well, because I'd sorted it out myself, they'd seen that, you know, I was prepared to actually think about it and do it, and not just float along like a flaneur. So uh, there was a moderate amount of... Uh, enthusiasm wouldn't be quite the right word but a, a moderate amount of non-hate and uh, it came right in the end because I had them up to that place in Gainsborough where we all used to work and they saw me conducting the Sands. an or- The Sands and they saw me conducting this 35-piece orchestra with arrangements I'd written and at that point I was let off the hook
0: So do you remember the first time they came to see you?
1: Uh, the first time, well, you see, the thing was when I was a kid, I was playing lots of. I wanted, to, I wanted to be Charlie Parker, and uh, my mother would describe that as toothache music. So they never came to see that. Um, they did come a couple of times to shows. Generally, when I was in charge of something large, they came to see my Benny Goodman show in Seven Oaks. But this was, was probably more their cup of tea. Yeah, it? but this is all much more recent, you know, in the last 10, 15 years. How do you, it must be nervous-making when you, they're sitting there, no? I don't know, because, you know, running a band on stage, it takes up the whole brain. And so I don't really ever get nervous. Uh, actually, thinking it through, uh, it's, if it's anything outside the comfort zone... Now, the comfort zone for me is driving, speaking, jumping up and down. But occasionally I have to do other things. For example, uh, Richard Pike wanted to do a very sort of special Benny Goodman kind of concert in the Cadogan Hall last year. And as part of it we were doing the 1939 routine where Benny played a piece he would commissioned by Bella Bartok called Contrasts for clarinet, violin and piano. And I had to practice for six months to do that. And that was like doing a school concert because Playing classical difficult classical music like that with a very high profile soloist next to me you, there's no room for flannel if it all goes wrong i can't make a gag up about it and and say we're doing the best we can on the budget and all the other you know get out of jail free cards that a chap can bring in in a lighter program we had to go and nail it and it was difficult so I wasn't apprehensive or scared but I I think I was very excited before that and I felt brilliant once it finished all of the rest of the gig I can't remember a thing about and I was on stage for two hours In Conversation Radio with Gary Williams the best in music and conversation every week My next record is the thing that made me want to play music Uh, my 13th birthday uh, my mum took me and my friend Richard down to the pearly Astoria to see Star Wars. It was just coming out. It was in March that year. It must have been 1978. And uh, I was absolutely knocked out with it. And so I went and bought myself the soundtrack album, because, you know, we bought albums then, didn't you went down to Woolworths to buy albums and things you liked. A proper record. A proper record. My other records at the time were ELO Out of the Blue on blue vinyl mm. and Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds with <laughs> yes. the Book of Pictures. Both brilliant albums. They are both brilliant albums, but the Star Wars London Symphony Orchestra thing uh, was... I mean, it's a great album, but the thing that really got me was the little bit of music that the uh, big, kind of, fly-like creatures in the bar scene, they have a live band on, Um, and reading the very detailed sleeve notes that John Williams wrote, which is great, he said that they had to make everything that was unfamiliar have familiar elements, so he decided to have this band be a kind of space-age pastiche of the Benny Goodman Quartet. And so he had soprano sax and um, Caribbean pans instead of clarinet and vibes. So he had reed and metal percussion, and that, he built it around that. And it's kind of a, it is kind of a piece of swing. It's actually three sopranos and the pans, and I was so taken with this. I used to play it over and over and over again like you did when you were little. And I decided I wanted to learn the steel pan. Because I really fancied doing it. I loved the steel pan solo. And I went down at my music department at school, and you could get music lessons at school, you know. And I said, um, I want to learn the pans. And they took me very seriously. And they got the percussion teacher onto me, and he was saying, Well, you am not quite sure. How-. He said, Do you want to learn vibraphone or something? And I went, No, I just want to play the pans. And then because that was unavailable, I went, Oh, well, all right, I'll learn the sax then. And that's, that's, that's what got me going. <laughs>
0: You said, you know, you just walked into your school music department and said, I want to
1: play an instrument, and they found something for you to play. It doesn't, it's not that easy now, is it, for kids? No, it's terrible now, and it shouldn't be. There's no reason. Uh, I firmly believe that free music education would save a lot of lives. I really, really do, because I would love to see a study, to see how much cheaper it would be to have kids in brass bands and orchestras than to do drug rehabilitation and rebuilding bus stops and, you know, keeping car insurance premiums down in dodgy areas. I reckon if we taught kids music who wanted to learn, you would be a big saving, you know, just in bean counter terms, let alone the cultural profile of the nation. Mm-hmm. And everywhere where you hear about one of these, you know, free music schemes going on, it's always great results a famous story about the Kingsdale school band, the Kingsdale Experiment in Dulwich in the late 70s. It was decided as an experiment to teach every child in Kingsdale Comprehensive School, in the the, the rough bit of Dulwich, musical instrument, all of them. Uh, So everyone had to learn, and music was given a priority, but they got proper, proper orchestral, you know, the orchestral professors from the colleges in to teach these ordinary kids. And within about three or four years, the whole, the school big band, for example, they had an orchestra in a big band. The big band had gone professional. Uh, people you may know who were in their big band, Jamie Talbot, came through that system. Um, the Cooper Brothers on trumpet. Trombone player called Fires Virgie, plays for Jules Holland. Uh, loads and loads and loads of players. Gail Thompson was in that band. That's uh, astonishing, from, from one, one experiment. One experiment. Uh, the very funny thing was when they, they got onto Blue Peter. And um, they had the school band there, and they're all, you know, it was sort of the Leslie Judd era, and they're going with this band, and every, every person in the school's got grade eight, and it's all amazing. And now here comes the band, they're going to play us in the mood. And uh, they played in the mood, and then Biddy Baxter apparently came in and said, oh, that was very nice boys and girls, you know, and the, the credits had run, and the studio was off. And um, Michael O'Gorman, the lead trumpet player, saying, so who, who, who are we making the invoices out to? Which, I beg your pardon, all the union cards came out. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't expecting that. That's, of course, in the mood. Glenn Miller at the
0: movies. You were quite specific that we played that particular version.
1: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Glenn Miller, shortly after the Star Wars experience, you see, I, this was all 1978, 79, 1980, when pop music on the radio was, was quite lean musically. It was Haircut 100 and things like that. And there was nothing about it I particularly liked Mm. Um, and so do you like most stars? I mean, do you have quite eclectic taste, or actually, you you're I, quite I, focused I, on just I, like jazz? I'm not partisan, but I have discovered that one of the things that really gets me going is strong rhythm and chromatic harmony.
0: In whichever guys it, it comes.
1: Wherever it comes. And, the, and of course, my mum had, had, as everybody's mum and dad did, in amongst the Semprini and, and the Nat Cole albums, the Glenn Miller album, of course, that everybody's mum and dad had. And I put it on, and that did it for me, because what I found later I've learned mm. about music is it's Very, very rich, harmonically, Miller's music. It's very, very clever. And he was paving the way to Nelson Riddle and all the great stuff in the 50s, which is really quite out there.
0: And is that the tune which, I mean, of course, it's still so popular and so requested Mm. and musicians will tend to roll their eyes, oh,
1: God, in the Mm. mood. How do you feel when it's it's on the list? We've got to play it well and we've really got to make it kick because... We must never forget that tens and tens of thousands of babies were born as a direct result of In the Mood. The reason I want the film version is because we it's the one Miller played in Orchestra Wives, I think, or Sun Valley Serenade, one of the two films he made, and they recorded him on a sound stage in a big film studio, so the recording is crystal clear, and it dispels the myth that Miller's band didn't swing. It really does.
0: And I think you're right that with these tunes when they say oh this is a tired old thing it's only tired because people are tired playing it but if yeah. they get if they approach it with fresh eyes and fresh ears and really attack it it's going oh, to have yeah. some sizzle isn't it because it's
1: brilliant writing you have to it is brilliant I mean I know In The Mood it's kind of something of a wars but if you go into the kind of the B team of the Glenn Miller music there's some absolute gems and there's a lot of players now who understand this so you can get a band that will really rip In The Mood and get it all going In Conversation Gary Williams.
0: When you're not playing music, I know you enjoy, you certainly used to enjoy your collection of airfix aeroplanes. I
1: still do. It must be quite a nice way to wind down. Well I firmly believe that ev- well, everybody, but certainly every musician needs to have a thing to do that isn't anything to do with music. Because if I can go and have a couple of hours whittling down a flying fortress, I come out and my whole brain is all it's all it's all reset. And it can cope with things. Again. I mean, you know what it's like. The phone's ringing and halfway through the phone call a text lands in your ear and then there's yeah. an email. Are you quite good at switching all that off and going into your shed? And yeah. the- well, The shed is very good. I have, to have all the, I have to have all the nasty bits finished but then I leave everything in the house and just go into the shed, put on Radio 4 and get, get really, really dull. But I think everybody needs to do this, be it fishing or soccer or country walking or something. Uh, everybody needs a place else to go. Tell me about your next record Body and Soul I just started learning the clarinet I was getting very into Benny Goodman But Buddy DeFranco is the clarinet player on this And it just blew me away completely And it's uh, one of the marvellous jazz At the Philharmonic albums Where there's cheering for every little nuance There's a big, big hall full of thousands of people and they all know what they're listening to and they all go bananas when we're well, on this one when uh, Lionel Hampton kicks it into double time or at the end of Oscar Peterson's amazing solo and at the end it just goes ballistic and I thought well jazz is obviously a really good job to do if that's what happens if you learn the clarinet properly and I love it I was, I was listening to this today and I, I, I still like, like it as much as I did when I was, I was a wee lad.
0: If you could have lived in any particular time, a different time to this,
1: what would your, uh, what would your decade have been? Oh, I'd, have, I'd like to have seen 1943 to 1953. I'd have loved to have seen Swing going modern and the emergence of the singers and all the mess in between. Yeah. I'd have loved to have seen that.
0: Do you think it was easier to be a musician when you first started than it is now?
1: Yeah, I think it was, because, I mean, it was well, certainly easier to just go and be a jobbing player because it was very easy for me to get working function bands when I was sort of in my 20s. And I remember when I was in my teens, uh, my teacher was uh, an old uh, pro called Bill Hudson who played on a lot of the Carry On film soundtracks. And, uh, you know, he was an old man when he was teaching me, so he had a long career since the 30s. Mm. And I remember we had a school dance band where we played, um, you know, the Jimmy Lally arrangements and all that sort of stuff. And I can remember after about a year, I could play them all and I could read them. So I said to him, you know, can I turn this into money and, and give up the paper round? And, and he went, oh, if, it, uh, if only it was 10 years ago. So this is going back to 1968. He said in Croydon there were five dance halls, 18-piece band in each one, um, working Monday to Saturday. And he said, well, what would happen is he said, I would have had a job in one of them. And if I fancied Monday and Tuesdays off, you'd go and do my job for me and you'd start your apprenticeship. And he said, that's what would happen. He said, but that's all gone. So right before I did grade six, I knew the business was in decline. (laughs) You've done pretty well for yourself. Well, it's changed, though. It's got very much more democratic now with everything being online and everybody recording online and people putting out their own recordings. It's not so polarised. But, of course, with it being democratic, there's a lot of babble. So we have to find ways to cut through the babble.
0: I know you're a big fan of uh, curries. Where's the best
1: place in London right now for a curry? Oh, my giddy aunt! that's a tough one. One of my favourites would be the Maharani on Berwick Street. Um, and try the um, Tandoori Haunch of Venison. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, While well I'm thinking about that, tell me about your last record.
1: Oh, well, my last record's quite different. It's not really... Uh, well, it, it is jazz, really, because within this piece, is, it's kind of like the entire jazz orchestration manual. And it's a piece of music written by Maurice Ravel and performed for the first time in 1912. It's a ballet, an hour's worth of music for a ballet, uh, called Daphne and Chloe. And it's one of the most beautifully coloured pieces of music I know, and I often use it if I, I want to have a good old sit-down and a think. Um, I discovered it in its entirety when I was doing a six-week gig in Sardinia. Make a request. Leave a comment. Tell us what you think. Visit com today.
0: Thank you, Pete. You know, whatever mood I'm in, I always feel better after a few minutes in the company of Pete Long. He's always busy with concerts and new recordings, and he writes a very entertaining blog, which you can read at plong.co.uk. P-L-O-N-G, dot dot Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch and hear more interviews just like this one, head over to my website, garywilliams.co.uk